Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation today with a message entitled, The Last Battle. So turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For years now, I have read American Civil War books, and if you were to ask me why, I'd say, I just don't know. You know, at times I've wondered what's wrong with me that I find this so utterly fascinating, the sheer pathos of the thing. It's both horrifying and yet it's, it's captivating. You know, I can see how it came to such a moment, but I still shake my head that such carnage and such suffering and savagery could have gone on. And I wonder at the mentality of those who argued that it was just about states' rights when the only state right that was in question was the right to enslave Africans. I mean, the politics that led to this war is fascinating. What especially absorbs me are the sounds of battlefield misery. Thousands of young men who marched straight into gunfire, who were shot and wounded and lay for an hour upon hour, groaning and crying on the battlefield, calling on God for mercy, and then finally succumbing. You know, I shudder when I read this, and as I've said, I've wondered about myself. I mean, what absorbs me so much about this? I I don't know. I get a little bit of that same feeling reading through the end of Revelation 19. The last battle that humanity will fight will be the very height and depth of insanity. I mean, who would expect to fight against God and win? But of course, we might ask that question at any point in history. I mean, what makes nations— or individuals think they can rebel against God and win. This is bound to end badly. And of course, as we come to the end of Revelation 19, we do see the last battle. You know, when I was younger in my faith, I thought that Armageddon must be a reference to human madness of war, finally coming to a climax as nations eventually pull the the nuclear trigger. Now, of course, we don't know what nations might yet do to one another in the future, but the last battle is the battle that describes the nations gathering for war against God. They will do what Psalm 2, verses 2 to 3 describes. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So that's the battle. But how can this end well for the kings of the earth? How can one set oneself against the Creator and think to emerge from it? I mean, this battle will be the greatest catastrophe in history. So let's read Revelation 19, 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with the great armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, you can see that Revelation does not describe the last battle at all, but it does describe both the preparation for the battle and then the aftermath, leaving multitudes of the dead. But let's track for a moment how we got to this point. 
You know, back in chapter 16, we read about the preparations for this battle. Chapter 16, 13 to 14 says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, I sense that the signs or the miracles that these demons perform, well, it's enough to convince the world leaders that they can prevail against God himself. And in truth, human beings are capable of incredible things. But now, humanity is bolstered by strong power and humanity believes. As Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth really do take counsel. They, they really do make plans. They feel that they are now lords of the earth and the creator's hold on this planet is going to be broken. Again, I point out that Armageddon is no aberration. In truth, this has been the great war of the ages. But according to scripture, the animosity with God finally comes to a pivotal point. Perhaps humanity believes that, you know, we've really achieved now godlike status. We are gods in our own right. So the nations assemble in some fashion to fight against the Lord Almighty. And it does no good to try to imagine how this comes to be. You know, are weapons pointed upward or is this to be conceived of in some other fashion? I mean, perhaps it's just an image meant to depict the nature of human rebellion. I, I offer no comment on all of that, only to say that a great war is now ready to explode humanity against God who made them. And then in Revelation 19:11, heaven opens and Jesus appears on a white horse followed by the host of heaven. The host of heaven, it would appear, are there only to observe as the rider descends with the sword in his mouth by which he slays the nation. And we come now to the passage under discussion. You know, verse 17 and 18 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, the angel standing in the sun is in the position of splendor. He's announcing victory. That's interesting, for the battle at that point has not yet even begun. But the outcome of the battle is not in doubt. God has always been sovereign. He's always been the Almighty. It may have seemed to some that God has allowed the world to carry on on its own, but that's not the case. God has allowed evil to have its day, but it's done for his purposes. But his arm has never been so weak, and he has never lacked in might or in power. And so this angel who has stood in the presence of God and, and has witnessed his splendor is not in doubt as to how this matter will end. Instead, he simply positions himself in the sun as a symbol of light and then calls for the birds of the earth to come and gather, eat the flesh of men. You know, it's hard to read this and not reflect back to an earlier part in the same chapter. The church of Jesus has been called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In contrast, the kings of the earth have been invited to the feast of the birds, and they're on the menu. Now, notice, I, I did say they were invited. And how easy it is for human beings to think that they control the decisions they make. But, but God is meticulously sovereign. Even when human beings rebel, their rebellion is still controlled by God. Our greatest rebellion does not throw God off of his throne. And we notice next that the ranks of the men that gather for war. Revelation speaks of kings, captains, and mighty men. And I have to assume here that the mighty men 
are not the same as those mentioned in Revelation 18.23, although I suppose it's possible. See, that passage said, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And it does seem likely that the ability to make war is a reflection of the vast wealth of the empire of the Antichrist. But the mighty men, no doubt, are the world's great warriors, those who are able to make war far more terrible than we can imagine. But I'm fascinated by this phrase, mighty men. I once knew a man whose father had served in Hitler's military. I mean, close to the end of the war, he was given a promotion in rank, which he immediately refused. I mean, who wanted to be a high-ranking Nazi at the close of the war? But that's a fitting symbol of what we see in this passage. How are the mighty men mighty when an angel stands in the sun calling for the birds to come and eat their flesh? You see, one has to assume that these men only appear mighty to the kingdom of the Antichrist, they don't appear mighty before God. And I'm reminded of what God told Jeremiah, and it's recorded in Jeremiah 45, verse 5. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. See, when any man or woman seeks greatness in the kingdom of this world, many an individual does seek to be famous, to be wealthy, have a great name in this world. It's foolishness. For the kingdom belongs to Christ and not to the great men of the world. How much better to be considered nothing in this world and yet to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in contrast, how foolish it is to become great in this world and then to be invited to the supper of the vultures. Mighty men, it does seem to be the ultimate folly. Now, of course, there have been Christians who have been famous. I'm not arguing that fame is wrong. But I am arguing that anyone who seeks fame is a fool. If one becomes famous for doing something that brings good and blessing to the human race, well, fine and well. But if one is driven to be recognized in this world, may I invite you to be converted to Christ. Be famous in the world to come and despise honor in this world. Long for the wedding supper of the Lamb and despise the supper of the vultures. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Come now to Revelation 19, verse 20. It says, And the beast was captured, 
and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, as I've said, the passage does not describe the actual battle, but the astute Bible reader might remember that the language found in verse 20 is borrowed from very similar language found in Ezekiel 39. Now, in Ezekiel 39, we're told of nations, nations that Ezekiel calls Gog, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, God announces that he is against these three end-time nations. Now, let's read verse 2. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Now, stop here for a moment and resist the temptation to identify these nations. See, I know the passage says that they come from the uttermost parts of the north, which has led some to suggest that, well, it's got to be Russia and that at some time in the end time, Russia is going to invade Israel. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that it fails to take into account a bit of the geography around Israel. There is in that part of the world something called the Fertile Crescent. And when nations, even when they were to the east of Israel, invaded Israel, they would come from the north following the Fertile Crescent. And if nations came from the west, as the Greeks did later, the geography also indicates that they would come from the north. I mean, all invasions into Israel always came from the north. So all that I'm saying is that speculation is not helpful here. So let's go to Ezekiel 39, 3 and 4. It says, Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to beasts of the field to be devoured. So do you see, this language sounds very similar to the language of Revelation. But unlike Revelation, it adds a very small amount of detail. The weapons of warfare fall from the right hand of the warrior, indicating that the nations are unable to use their weapons at Armageddon. Christ, who is sovereign over all, can at any moment overrule the plans of men. If we go to war, well, it's at his permission. And if all our plans for warfare fails, it's at his direction. Now, moving forward to verses 17 to 20, Ezekiel 39 says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. Now, if you didn't understand the language of eating rams and lambs and goats and bulls, understand that Ezekiel is describing the slain in the day of the Lord, and he's describing their destruction like a sacrificial feast that Israel would be able to recognize. Israel sacrificed rams and lambs and goats and bulls, and at the last battle, these mighty men of the Antichrist will be sacrificed to the Lord on the plains of Megiddo like goats and bulls were before the Lord. Now, the question that needs to be answered by the Bible reader is simple. 
Are we to take that language literally? I mean, perhaps Armageddon is just a symbol for the last battle. Now, of course, it's really impossible to answer that question. I mean, after all, we are reminded that this is apocalyptic language, and sometimes we find ourselves struggling. I mean, should we read the language of the apocalypse as an image, or should we read it as a literal depiction? And we have to admit that it's not a question on which Bible-believing Christians should divide. But we are right to ask, is there non-apocalyptic language that describes this same event? Well, yeah, there is. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so the language of Jesus appearing and killing the Antichrist is there. Jesus will appear, referring to his second coming, and with a breath of his mouth, which sounds so much like the sword that comes from his mouth in Revelation, well, then the Antichrist is killed. And what someone's going to object here. In Revelation 19, verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are merely captured. They're not killed. And that the army of the Antichrist is what is killed and dies in battle. Well, that's true. But the language of killing the Antichrist might be completely consistent with killing his army, throwing him into the lake of fire. And so, you know, from my perspective, it seems quite likely that the battle of Armageddon is not just a symbol, but it's an actual event in history. It's the last battle in human history. But we do well to notice that Christ captures both the beast and the false prophet. And the book of Revelation contains a number of villains. You know, the dragon, that was a reference to Satan. The beast, that was a reference to the Antichrist who rules the nations by the power of Satan. And the false prophet, well, that's the great end time prophet who's charged with the religion of the empire of the Antichrist. So at the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus simply speaks the word. The armies of the world die, and Jesus also speaks the word, and the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Now, it would be fitting at this moment to describe the difference between the lake of fire and the place of the rest of the dead. Uh, we should not mistake the lake of fire, which is hell, with Hades. We will see that when we get to Revelation 20, verse 14, that in the future, Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire so that at some time in the future, Hades will be in exactly the same place as the lake of fire. Now, now this matter deserves more study than I can afford here, but I do say that Hades is a Greek word which translates a Hebrew word. That word is Sheol, that is the place of the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, Sheol can speak of punishment, but it can also speak about the place where all the dead go. But in the New Testament, that matter is described with greater precision. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 verse 9 says, When the king of Babylon dies, it says, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. Now, in the New Testament, Hades, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Sheol, is defined. So, for instance, listen to Luke 16, and Jesus tells the story there of a righteous man named Lazarus and an unrighteous rich man. And Jesus says, and here I'm reading Luke 16, 22 to 23, he says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment, and then it goes on. And so Hades is a place of torment. But as we're going to see when we come to the end of Revelation, 
we will see that a time is coming when Hades will give up its dead. And the dead come out of Hades, and then they appear before God's throne of judgment. And then after the judgment comes the lake of fire. Now, all that to say that when it comes to the beast and the false prophet, those two men bypass Hades and instantly go into the lake of fire. And when we come to discussion of the lake of fire later, we will see how utterly horrifying that is. But the rest of the troops are killed, and they don't go to the lake of fire. They go to Hades, awaiting a bodily resurrection before the judgment seat of God. Now we come to verse 21 of Revelation 19. It says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And with those words, John ends the discussion of the last battle. Those words remind us that such is the destiny of all who oppose the purposes of God. See, I want you to think back to those seven churches that first received the book of Revelation. It was the Roman emperor that had begun a general program of persecuting the church. The church of Smyrna was told to be faithful to the point of death. God would give them the crown of life. The account of the last battle reminds us that the enemies of our Lord will have their day, but they will perish. So if today you're praying the prayer of David, recorded in Psalm 13, verse 2, and you're praying, How long, O Lord, shall my enemy be exalted over me? Well, know then that even while you don't know how long, you do know that the enemies of the gospel will not be exalted in the last day. They will be slain before the Lord. They will enter into Hades and await the great judgment. John, as we think about this message, you entitled The Last Battle. And as we've been talking, it sort of makes me think, you know, this isn't just a battle. It's been a long stream of historic battles over the centuries to come to this one point. Ben, that's such a good point. The the long war against God is going on in our day. Uh, We are not at a place now where we gather the human troops at Armageddon, but the day is coming. It's like it's this culmination this hatred of God, this saying to God, you, our creator, will not be Lord over us. We will wrest the creation away from you. It will be ours. We'll have stolen it from you. Uh, But the Lord who sits in heaven laughs, and in the end of the day, all human striving uh, to replace God will come to nothing. That's the message. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Revelation right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.